you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. William Shakespeare put it like this. He said, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven upon the face. Another one put it like this. Maybe you've heard of Kendrick Lamar. He put it like this. I fight pain in hurricanes. Today I wept, trying to fight back tears, flood on my doorstep. Mass destruction and mass corruption. Man, the souls are suffering. What are they saying? I think they're saying that suffering is a part of life. Two ways of putting the same thing. And they're right, of course, because suffering touches the life one way or another of every single person who ever has lived, who ever will live. Yet, despite that fact and that truth, I think our culture today gives us unimaginably thin and poor resources for dealing with pain, with suffering, with difficulty. And so today I want to make the case that you and I will never be able to deal with nor be able to handle that inevitability, not just with uh, medical resources. We won't be able to handle it just with technological resources, just with financial resources, although those things are very helpful. But today I want to show you how in the midst of suffering and difficulty that we will never make it through without spiritual resources. And we're going to see all of that in the life of someone today that you maybe haven't heard too much about in the Bible or, or in church. Her name is Anna. And today I want to lift up her story and lift up her voice as a way into a much better way of handling, processing pain and difficulty. Today we're going to see three things about Anna as we conclude our series this month about prayer. We're going to see three things about Anna first. We're going to see what Anna knows. We're going to see what Anna does and what Anna becomes, what she knows, what she does, and what she becomes here from Luke chapter two. Let's begin here in number one and see what Anna knows. Who is Anna? What does she know? Well, we meet her only once in the Bible, only briefly at the tail end of what's called the birth narrative of Jesus Christ in Luke two. And here in this chapter, Jesus' parents, eight days after he was born, because they're good Jewish people, they bring him to the temple for his Brit Malah, that's his circumcision, his entrance into the Jewish community. And so while he's there, there's this strange old lady that comes up to his parents, Mary and Joseph. And if you grew up in church, maybe you've had one of those in your life. The strange old church lady. I had one. Her name was Marge Andrews. She brought candy. We call her the candy lady. God bless you, Marge. We love the old ladies in church. But uh, this uh, Anna comes up to Mary and Joseph. And she begins to get all excited and she does and she says something remarkable that we'll come back to in just a moment. But as we learn about Anna, we're only given a couple of details that show us that she knew in particular one thing. What did she know? Look at this. It tells us that she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. So what did she know? Well, in a word, Anna new pain. Anna knew pain. She's now, when we meet her, she's this elderly widow in a patriarchal culture with no children to support her. She was married for a few years, then her husband dies. How did she deal with the death of her husband? How did she deal with the loneliness of being a single person in a culture where you were nothing as a woman if you didn't have a man? 
didn't have a family. How does she deal with her pain in that culture? Well, before I answer that, just to give us a little bit of context and contrast, I want to just ask, how do we today, how do we deal with our pain in our culture to sort of distinguish what Anna did and how we process ours? Well, we're going to look at that because historically, there have been four major ways that cultures historically have tried to equip people, their people, to deal with pain, to deal with suffering. Let's look at them in turn quickly. The first major way a culture tries to equip its people, has, has tried this, is called the moralistic view. The moralistic view says basically you suffer because it's your own fault. This is more or less the Hindu view, something called karma. John Lennon from the Beatles sang about this uh, in his hit Instant Karma, which if you know that you probably remember it from a Nike commercial. You're welcome, Gen Xers, right? Uh, But this song is basically asking, well, what's, what's wrong with you? Your life is going bad because you're not living right. And that famous first line of the song goes like this. Instant karma's gonna get you. Sort of a thinly veiled threat. Like, okay, John, you know, it's sort of a threat. It is. Shape up or get shipped out. That's the first view, the moralistic view. Second is the self transcendent view. That's more or less Buddhism. That's what that great philosopher Yoda tries to teach Anakin in Star Wars Episode 3. You may remember the scene Anakin, he's soon to become Darth Vader. Seeks out Yoda for help with some nightmares he's been having in their conversation. Goes like this. Yoda says, these visions you have. Anakin says, they are of pain, suffering, death. I won't let my visions come true. Yoda says, rejoice for those around us who transform into the force. Mourn them, do not. Miss them, do not. Attachment leads to jealousy. And it can ask, what must I do, Master Yoda? Yoda, here's his answer. Here's the view. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. And there it is. That's the Buddhist view. To deal with suffering, you try to escape it. Suffering's an illusion. You only, only escape when you can let go of every attachment. That's the second view. Third view is what's called the fatalistic view, which is what a lot of old pagan religions believed. And if you're a, a Marvel movie fan out there, you know this word Ragnarok. Yeah, that's the title of the third Thor movie. Marvel just ripped it out of Norse literature. Uh, Ragnarok in Norse literature was the battle to end all battles. All the good guys, in their view, were going to die no matter what. So you just accepted your fate and you fought gloriously to the end, even though you were going to die a horrible death being eaten by a monster. Congratulations, you know. Your fate was inevitably terrible, but you just accepted it anyway. And finally, there's the fourth view, the dualistic view, which is basically the universe is more or less like a, a, a giant Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, two equal and opposite powers. If you've seen the TV show Lost, you know that's what the show is about. In the pilot episode, uh, dualism is explained by this character, John Locke, and he says the universe is like a, like a giant game of backgammon. And he lifts up two pieces and he says to one character, one power is dark, one power is light. Which one do you want to be? It's your choice. And so that's what the island was on the show, if you watched it. It's the place where people worked off, they burned off their cosmic debt. They came in with baggage and tried to become better people. But the point is, for all of human history almost, these four views have dominated. And sometimes, for sure, these views taught people, teach people to be too passive 
in the face of suffering. But here's what they all did do. They all taught you that suffering, though terrible, that suffering, though you should never seek it out, that suffering could be something that could help you achieve a greater purpose somehow in life. You could become more moral, more enlightened, uh, more resolved, more faithful. But again, none of those cultures told us what we hear now in our modern secular culture, which is this, that there is no God, therefore there is no right and wrong, therefore there is no greater purpose at all in life, except what you make up. And so now, in our Western culture, now individual happiness and personal comfort are what are most important to us. Which means we're implicitly taught this, that suffering now, in our view, is only a meaningless interruption. A meaningless interruption. Something is only something that keeps us from our dreams and our goals because there is no God with a dream for us. Therefore, we've had to make up our own goal and suffering can only get in the way of that. And nothing is to be learned from suffering, is to be avoided at all costs. Let me tell you, that is a foolish and terrible way to deal with something that's inevitable. That's like, that's like a culture saying to someone who's in the middle of the highway in a lawn chair with a car coming at him, it's okay, just make yourself comfortable. Dr. Paul Brand is a, was a pioneering orthopedic surgeon for many years in India working with leprosy patients before he came back to the U.S. And he wrote this in the book I'm sure we've all read called The Gift of Pain. (laughs) Yeah, Corey says it's her favorite. Yes. Read it twice, did you? All right. Quote, he said, In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Why is that? Again, I think it's because our culture gives us no way to deal with pain except to say it's getting in the way of me. And because we're taught that self-expression is the highest good, what can suffering possibly do except get in the way of that? So what then? What are we going to do with our pain, huh? Our, Our difficulty, our suffering? Should we? Should we just roll back? To one of those earlier views, no, and here's why. Because unlike believers in karma, Christians believe suffering is not always your fault. That's the point of the book of Job. Second, unlike Buddhists, Christians believe suffering is real. It's not an illusion. Third, unlike fatalists, Christians don't just put on a happy face. Don't the Psalms teach us to cry out to God, even in the face of our despair? Yes, and unlike dualists, Christianity don't, doesn't see suffering as the way you just pay off your cosmic debt. And especially, unlike our modern secular culture, Christians believe that suffering can be, is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if we will face it rightly, like Anna does right here in her pain, it can actually plunge us into a greater experience of God and help us to become something perhaps we never could have been on her own. That's what Anna knew. She knew pain. Oh, which is unfair. Which is not right. It is overwhelming. It is very, very real. But because she has the lens of a biblical worldview, which is that there is a sovereign and good God, now that means he can make our suffering meaningful. Which means we don't have to walk away from it. We can actually become better as we walk through it. How do we do that, though? How do we walk through it and become better? 
I think that's what Anna also shows us. Let's see, number two, what does she do here? What does she do with what she knows? I think she shows us a path. We're going to see here, Anna do two things with her pain in this passage. And they offer us each, I'll put it like this, offer us each a kind of spiritual resource when we suffer. Let's look at these in turn. First, it says she never left the temple serving not an ace. So she never left the temple. She's always at the temple. She never leaves. What's she doing here? What's this mean? Let me try to show you. Uh, a few years ago, there was this massive research project headed up by Harvard psychologists, which always makes it sound more, you know, important. And the point of the project, though, was to track the 7,000 lives over nine years of people that they studied. It was called the Alameda County study. And it was this huge project, 7,000 people, nine years. They studied everything those 7,000 people did, where they lived, what they ate, what they drove, what they watched, where they went. And here is what they found in the end after a decade of studying human beings. They found a couple of things. First, researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. And second, that people who smoked had poor nutritional habits, but strong social ties live significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but were isolated. In other words, it means two things. First, it means, number one, that isolation is a death sentence. But second, and number two, and of course, this is great news to children everywhere, it means that it's better to eat Twinkies with your friends than it is to eat your vegetables alone. first thing I've said you've like all day, but it's not hard. That's how important strong community is. Strong relationships are to your life when you suffer your mental health in general. So what's Anna doing here when it says she never left the temple, I think is the saying she's eating Twinkies with her friends. She's eating Twinkies with her friends. It's a way of putting that she's here in community because the temple was more than just a place where the worship of God took place. The the temple was a place where the people of God gathered and gathered and came and gathered again and again and again. And by saying she never left the temple, it's saying, and is digging into her spiritual community over years, over decades. She's throwing herself also into the well-being of others. She is giving and receiving, serving and being served. She is weaving together a broader, broader social community than one isolated life can produce on its own. And what she found there in community gave her strength for her journey over a lifetime. Let me ask you though, do you think she never left the temple because the people there in the temple were just like her, who just who just knew everything about her, who like were, knew exactly what to say to her, right? In the way she liked it said, and said everything, but it was, no, they didn't. The answer is no to that, by the way. Not just. A few years ago, I was doing one of our connection card calls, and it's like the, the thing that we do when you fill out the orange thing. You should do that if you haven't done that, by the way. But I used to do the calls, don't so much do them anymore, so don't worry. If you fill it out today, I won't be calling you. Somebody better will actually. But anyway, I did this call and some lady, a lady answered the phone. And after I introduced myself to her, figured out who I was, she, I asked her, sorry, I asked her how, like I always do, how she made her way to Mosaic, like why she's here, how did she make her way here? And she literally said back to me, and I quote, I'm here because I'm looking for the perfect church. 
When she told me this, I said, me too. <laughs> I actually said, I said, good luck. I said, if you find it, let me know. I might want to join. <laughs> I don't think she thought that was very funny. <laughs> Jean Vanier writes this. He was a creator of a community for the mentally handicapped in Toronto. He said, there is no ideal community. Community is made up of people with all their richness, but also with their weakness and poverty of people who accept and forgive each other. Humility and trust are more at the foundation of community and perfection. Another way of putting it is this, and this may be the only quote you get in your lifetime from Yuri Broffenbrenner, psychologist. This is his definition of community and family. He says, it's a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. The key word there, of course, is irrational. Yes, it's irrational. Can you see what Anna is doing here? Anna is making, she is living out an irrational commitment to the people around her, and she makes it in life and faith in the long run. Let me just say this to you. I'm going to be sensitive and gentle, but also firm here. Don't let, hear me, don't let our individualistic culture rob you of the joy of walking with people who are even unlike you over the course of a lifetime. You know something here, hear me. I understand there's reasons for this, but hear me. If you come here only once a month-ish, twice, come into worship, get what you need, shoot the deuce, the people on the way out, as the kids say, listen, that is not, that is not an irrational commitment to the well-being of others. That is a rational commitment. That makes sense, right? That's simple. That's convenient. It fits in. But you, if that's you, you will never experience the joy of what Anna gets over a lifetime of finding out what she found out, which is that walking with the people of God through the ups and the downs of life, no matter their imperfections, can over time bring a kind of healing into your life. You say, Morgan, no one knows exactly what I'm going through. That's a fact. I don't. No one can. The Bible says that. The Proverbs says each heart knows its own bitterness. No one else can share its joy. No one else knows what's going on on the inside except for God. But let me tell you, hear me. Direction, not commiseration, is a better foundation for lasting friendship. Hear me, I'll say it again. I don't think you got that. Direction, not commiseration is a better foundation for lasting friendship. You know what's helped bring the, some of the greatest healing into my life? Oh, it's been walking with people unlike me who are going in the same direction, following Jesus. Therefore, community is a resource for us when we suffer, if we'll allow it to be. Second, what else does Anna do here? What does she do with her pain? Second, it says that she serves night and day with fasting and prayer. She serves night and day. No, this is not the point where I ask you to become a team member here at Mosaic. All right, no. But for some of us, you know, when you hear this, when I read this, this sounds like, man, this is, is this like a recipe for burnout? How does she do this? Like she serves night and day. She never quits doing stuff for others. And God, how does she not get burned out? Because, you know, burnout is a real deal. Burnout's a real deal. It can come from a variety of sources. And yes, sometimes burnout can come from overcommitting, over volunteering in a church or in an organization. But 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 sometimes what can burn us out is the overscheduling of our children. 
<laughs> we can't, I've lived that one. We can't say no to coaches or directors or instructors. And so we say yes to everything, afraid they won't become the next professional athlete or musician. You know, the odds be danged. We're going to ignore those. You know, uh, sometimes what burns us out is the overwork we do. Sometimes what burns us out is the fact that we don't turn off our screens. Let's go to sleep. But I think most of the time, what burns us all out. Let me just speak for me. I know each time I've felt or approached or experienced burnout, what is at the root of it is a poverty of soul. It's a poverty of my inner life, a poverty of my inner person, a poverty on the, on the inside at the root of all our burnout in life. Let me tell you, it is a poverty of your inner self. And to prove my point and to show you how important prayer is to you and it was to Anna, because after all, this is a series on prayer, you know. Let me introduce you now to your friend and mine, the great Apostle Paul. I'll put it like this. If you were Paul's friend uh, as a first century Christian, wouldn't that be nice, right? You're Paul's friend. You're a first century Christian. You are staring down the Roman Empire. What would you have wanted him to pray for you? We all like it when we have powerful people pray for us, right? Now, what would you have wanted Paul to pray for you? Would you have wanted him to pray, perhaps, for your husband to be released from jail? Preaching the gospel. For the safety of your children as they went to school so they wouldn't be mocked or ostracized. Would you have wanted him to pray for the return of your few possessions that were confiscated by the empire. Would you have wanted him to pray for the government to stop killing family and friends? Listen, if you were wanting that, and let me tell you, I would have. And you were Paul's friend, I don't think you would have wanted to be his friend anymore after you heard what he was praying for you. Because here's what Paul prays for his friends suffering under the heel of the boot of the Roman Empire. And this is, they're all like this in the epistles. This is just one case study. Look at Ephesians 1.18. He says, as I pray that the eyes of your heart would see what a great deal you can get on a new car. <laughs> your heart would be enlightened that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That you would know the riches of that promotion and paycheck. no. The glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of that vacation you're going to take? No. Of his power toward us who believe. What's he praying for? He's praying that our inner life would flourish. Why? Because we all believe, I believe, that most of, not all my unhappiness comes from stuff outside me. Because we believe if our circumstances were different, we would be happy if we just had those new floors. Oh, Uh, If we just had, I've lived this one, if we just had more people appreciate us, if I would get like nicer emails from people in church sometimes, you know, if God would just answer that prayer the way I want it, oh, we pray for our circumstances to change. And let me tell you, sometimes they absolutely should. But Paul never prays like that. He constantly prays, not for the outside stuff, but for the inside stuff, that your inner life would flourish. He prays above all that you would see. Oh, not just what you can get more of from the hand of God, but what you already have in the heart of God. Oh, and he prays, he says, if you'll get that, then you'll know that what you have is enough. And hear me, who you are is enough. You will know that what you have is enough and who you are is enough. I think this is what Anna gets with fasting and prayer. And it sustains her for a lifetime. Hear me. Anna digs into community. She digs into prayer. And she carves a path through her pain that sustains her over decades and decades of a lifetime. 
And because she does this, she digs into community, digs into prayer. She becomes something greater than she could possibly have foreseen. Let's see what that is. Number three, what does this incredible woman become? Luke 2, 38 says, at that very moment, Mary and Joseph in the temple with Jesus, Anna comes up, she began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me set it up like this. You may know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian thinker and writer. She was 18 when she broke her neck diving into shallow water. She became a quadriplegic, lost the use of her arms and her legs. And while she was in his rehabilitation center, can you imagine 18 years old, a teenager in Baltimore, she's wrestling through the meaning of suffering and asking why God would allow such a tragedy into her life at such a young age. She met someone in even worse shape than she was, a young woman named Denise Walter. Denise was a 17-year-old high school senior, very popular. She was a high school cheerleader, super athletic. And one day, Denise was bounding up the stairs at her high school, and she tripped because her legs were becoming numb. She goes home that day. She takes a nap. When she wakes up, she's paralyzed from the waist down. She was soon admitted to the rehab center where Johnny Tata was staying. And within a week of being admitted, Denise's condition worsened. Within a week, she was paralyzed from the neck down. Three weeks later, she went blind. And four years later, at the age of 21, she died. She had, as it turned out, this form of rapid progression, multiple sclerosis. So while Denise was in the hospital during those years and her condition was worsening, Johnny hardly saw any visitors ever come to see Denise except for Denise's mother who came day in and day out because she was a Christian and read the Bible to her. Johnny said it was so sad and so lonely for so long. And Johnny, during all of this, of course, was very angry with God, understandably, for her own circumstances. And she was wrestling with God about why she was in a wheelchair, why she would never walk again after being 18 years old. She was a Christian. She asked, why did this happen to me? But Johnny, for herself, came to this conclusion. Johnny believed that there could be a purpose for, through suffering. She believed that sometimes it's through suffering we're able to change in ways perhaps we couldn't otherwise. Sometimes she believed it's only through suffering we're able to become more humble and to see things we couldn't see. Help other people that we couldn't help unless we endured that hardship. But when Denise died about three years later, Johnny was extremely angry about it because Johnny said she didn't see any purpose at all in Denise's suffering. Denise did not appear to grow any more holy or, or more uh, you know, glorious through her suffering. No one saw Denise suffer well. She didn't get to be a witness to anyone. It was only her mother who came to see her. But in the middle of her, her anger and wrestling, one of Johnny's friends pulled out this passage and this verse and showed it to her. Ephesians 3.10 says this, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? The rulers and the authorities where? In the heavenly realms. Then her friend said, look at Luke 15, where Jesus says, when one person repents, it's like all the angels in heaven rejoice. And of course, she could have also turned to the book of Job, where when we see Job suffer, he does this in front of this heavenly court of angels and demons who watch how Job suffers. In other words, what Johnny discovered was this. She discovered that how we handle our sufferings, how we process our pain affects heaven and hell in ways we can't 
cannot imagine, in ways we cannot see. How we live our lives affects the universe, the Bible says. And so when Johnny Erickson Tata understood that, she actually wrote Denise Walter's mother a letter, and this is what she said, quote, I am sure that the angels and demons stood amazed as they watched the uncomplaining patience of your daughter. Can you imagine what would it be like to get a letter like that about your child, your son, or your daughter? What would it be like to get a letter that said, I shared a room with your child and I saw things that only the angels saw and they stood in amazement at how your child suffered. What would it be like to hear that your son or daughter had become a pointer to the, to the reality of God and a greater reality of his goodness? Hmm? See, in a way, hear me, that's exactly what Anna has become. Because of how she handled her suffering, she becomes a pointer to a greater reality than herself. She becomes a pointer to the truth and to the goodness of who Jesus Christ is. She, she goes up to, to Mary and Joseph and she makes much of Jesus. She calls attention to Jesus. And let me tell you, had she not lived the life that she lived, had she not processed her pain in the way that she did, her words would not have carried the weight that they carried. She became, in the end, a permanent pointer to the truth and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And who is he? Who is he? Come on. And what did she say he was? What did she see of him? Well, she was a prophet, remember? A prophetess. And Anna here, using her prophetic gift, glimpses in part what we can now see in full. It says she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for what? <clears throat> the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus is a redeemer, she's saying. He's the one who buys back with a, with a payment. Why is redemption such a big deal to Anna? Oh, it's because of this. It's because when you suffer, oh, you want to know what? It's worth it. You want to know that your suffering isn't meaningless. And so the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus prove that suffering isn't meaningless. On the cross, in a single stroke, he both fulfilled the law of God and purchased our pardon. Not, not by saving himself through suffering but by going through it, walking through it. And as his disciples, as they stared in terror or they fled in fear, God was doing his greatest work. He was redeeming us through the suffering, through the passion of Jesus Christ. They were all staring at a work of grace in the face, but they couldn't see it. They, they didn't think it could happen. Oh, but they were wrong and therefore to say, that God cannot be doing something great in your life right now means, of course, that you would be God. You'd have to be God to be able to say that. And second, to say that a God can exist because bad things have happened creates a bigger problem for us altogether. It means now we can't even call anything good or bad or right or wrong. Now our standard for condemning evil goes away and all we're left with in the universe is a bloody struggle for power where the powerless suffer meaninglessly. If there's no God, we've got a bigger problem. We can't even call anything evil. It isn't even real. Hear me, that's not good news. But the good news is the, of the gospel is that Jesus, himself a sufferer of brutal poverty, God in the flesh, came in our place, came to suffer to one day, put an end to all suffering, to buy us back, to buy our grief back, to buy our pain back, to let us know what seems like a wasted life and a wasted future and wasted time isn't that at all. He came to redeem us all and to buy it all back. See, Anna, oh, she knew this. She saw this, perceived this. 
She knew pain, yes. But in the middle of it, she dug in to community. She dug into prayer. And in the end, her life became a pointer to Jesus. We're all still talking about today. What about your life? What about my life? My prayer today is that we would know, if we know this, we would do this so that we could become this. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. We're going to ask for his grace and touch now. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.